Broadcasting live from the North Fulton Business Radio X studio, it's time for To Your Health with Dr. Jim Morrow. To Your Health is brought to you by Morrow Family Medicine, an award-winning primary care practice, which brings the care back to healthcare. Hello, this is Dr. Jim Morrow. I appreciate you tuning in for another episode of To Your Health. We're excited to bring this episode to you today. We're going to be talking about some very important and timely information. We're going to tie that in also to other things that affect human beings and their health. We're going to talk about the coronavirus for a moment, and then we're going to talk about various and assorted human viral infections, other viruses that affect us and infect us on a regular basis. We are doing this a little differently today. We are not in the North Fulton Business Radio X studio in the Renaissance Bank on Wynwood Parkway in Alpharetta, Georgia, because as you might imagine, the bank lobby's closed, which means the studio is not available. So John Ray has packed up all of his equipment and taken it to his home studio, and I'm in my office in Cumming, Georgia, and we are excited to be talking to you. And I appreciate the fact that so many of you have reached out to me in some way and told me that you're listening to the podcast and that you appreciate it and you like it and had some ideas, and I appreciate all of that very much. So we're very excited to be talking to you today. Uh, it does feel a little bit like we're all undergoing a, a major assault, which we are by this virus. Um, we are very fortunate in Forsyth County, Georgia, here where I am, that we have not had a great many infections at this point, but I don't use the word promise very often, but I almost promise you that we will have a great many infections. Um, but we are separated today. We are social distanced by many miles, I'm quite certain. And I hope that you are doing the same thing. I want to remind you that I've got my friend and colleague, John Ray, here running the board at his house. John, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, safe and sound and, and healthy. And, uh, I, th- I think you're happier being separated from me. Actually, don't, don't act so happy about it. No, I like coming and seeing you, <laughs> okay. but you got to remember you're in, you're in that age range where you're at risk, John. So you got to be looking out for people. Uh, yeah, I'll, I love that text you sent me the other day about how you're looking out for your elderly patients. Thank you so much for that. Um, how many of your patients received that text? One. Well, thank you. I'm glad I'm so special. I want to remind everybody, too, we do appreciate you listening. And whatever app you might be listening on, I encourage you to hit the subscribe button so you can be informed every couple of weeks when we have a new episode to a month. Um, You can reach out to us by email if you'd like to. That email address is drjim, that's drjim, at toyourhealth.md. Or you can tweet us. We are at To Your Health on Twitter. Um, we are broadcasting live on the North Fulton Business Radio X website, also on the To Your Health with Dr. Jim Mara Facebook page. So if you are listening to a recorded version, uh, next time we're together, if you want to, you can listen live on Wednesday at 1 o'clock. So let's update a little bit about the coronavirus. There's, I've got some things I want to tell you that you've heard time and again, but they're important. Uh, they're very important, I think, for knowing what to do if uh, if you're concerned about this coronavirus, and if you're not, you should be. Number one is wash your hands. Spend some time washing your hands. Take 20 seconds out of your day, several times a day, and wash them thoroughly with soap and water. And when soap and water is not available, use a hand sanitizer that is 
60% or more alcohol that's been shown to be very effective against this virus. Dial soap has been shown to be very effective against this virus. Uh, so that's a good thing. Don't touch your face, including your eyes, nose, or mouth, if you can avoid it. I've never been more aware of when I touch my face, and it seems like every time I think about anything, I've got my hand on my mouth or touching my nose or my eye, and I, as I say that, I'm scratching my nose. It's very difficult, but try to be as aware as you can of that. This is the main entryway for this virus to get into your system. If you're sick, stay home. Just stay home. If you feel you need to go to the doctor, call them first so they can tell you if you need to come in, and maybe they'll be able to do a telemedicine visit with you to either help figure that out or help get you better. The vast majority of people who are out there who are sick do not have this virus, and so you've got something that we can do something about in the vast majority of cases. When you do call for sneeze, and it's pollen season now, if you hadn't noticed that, look at your car next time you go out, just cover your mouth or your nose or both when you sneeze or cough. Sneeze and cough into the crook of your elbow if you need to. Cover with a tissue, throw that tissue away. Don't try to reuse tissues, there are lots of tissues. It's not like toilet paper. And then I go, I refer you back to the first tip, wash your hands after that. Wipe down surfaces that are frequently touched. Use a disinfectant wipe to do that. Good time to buy Clorox stock, I'm sure, because people are buying those wipes hand over fist. If you know people that are sick, stay away from them. That's important. If, if, if they're loved ones and need your help, wash your hands frequently, wipe down surfaces, do what you can to avoid getting the virus. Try to stay at least six feet away from anyone right now. I went and picked up a salad for lunch at my favorite restaurant, Giorgio's Restaurant here in Cumming, and we were all standing outside waiting on the window to open and give us our food, and we were all a good six or eight feet away from each other. Nobody said anything about it. It just happened, and it's a real smart thing to do. With schools and colleges out right now, stay at home. Don't be one of these, careful what word I use here, unthinking teenagers or early 20s that ends up at the beach with a whole crowd of people. Don't do that. A large number of those people tested positive for the virus when they left. Remember that masks are made for sick people. Masks don't do much to get pe keep people from getting sick. They are for keeping sick people from making you sick. If you're a healthcare provider, you might need a mask and you might need a couple of different types. But if you're just a person around town, the mask is going to do very little to keep you from getting sick. Visit the CDC website. Go there often because the information is changing on a regular basis and, and learn what you need to know about this virus and what's happening. Get a flu shot. At Mara Family Medicine, we are still today seeing influenza A. The rates are down to about 15% right now, but still, influenza A is still out there. It's still making people sick. It still confuses the issue. So get a flu shot. It's not too late. There are some great thoughts about treating this virus. Uh, you may have heard about using Plaquenil, hydroxychloroquine for the virus. It's an anti-malaria drug that has some antiviral activity, and it has an awful lot of potential, it seems, uh, to get rid of this virus. And they're starting to use it in New York State, which currently is the hardest hit state we have. Uh, so they're using that. And they're also using azithromycin, which you might know under the name of ZPAC, which has been overprescribed more often than probably anything else on the planet 
but it has anti-inflammatory qualities that can help the inflammation in your lungs and can help. There's an antiviral drug called remdesivir. These names are never easy. And it was thought when Ebola was a problem, a bigger problem is always a problem, but when it was thought it was a bigger problem, it was thought that remdesivir might work for Ebola. It did not, but it looks like it might work for coronavirus. It's having some effect in some compassionate use studies. And then there's an immune modulator. If you think about the injectable medicines people take for rheumatoid arthritis and things like that, psoriasis, you see them on TV all the time. There's one called tocilizumab. I did that really well, John, by the way. You should comment on that. Tocilizumab is one of these drugs, and it might be pretty good for the coronavirus. If you get infected, most infections are going to be fairly mild. Most of them are going to resolve spontaneously. But I encourage you, if you do get the virus for one week after your symptoms start, do not go around people. There's going to be a vaccine, but it's going to be probably still almost a year, maybe a little more, before we have a vaccine. So those are the things I wanted to talk to you about as far as the coronavirus as it stands here on March the 25th, 2020. So also today, I want to talk about nine other viruses that infect human beings. And in no particular order, these are HIV, hepatitis B, hepatitis C, herpes, influenza, CMV or cytomegalovirus, varicella zoster, which causes chickenpox and shingles, RSV, which is respiratory syncytial virus, and human papillomavirus. So over the course of time, Viral infections have caused millions of human casualties around the world. They drive the development of antiviral drugs, and this is a pressing need much more obviously today than ever. In this new era of drug development, this, is, this whole new era has been going on since the very first antiviral drug, which was approved in June of 1963. So that's how far back we go with some efforts to treat viruses. And since then, many, many drugs have been developed. 90 drugs were formally approved to treat nine of these human infectious diseases. So we have some drugs, but there are 200 viruses that have already been discovered that can cause infection. So we just don't have enough of an armamentarium to really take care of viruses in general. And the development of medicines can be fairly slow. Now, if there's a silver lining to a pandemic like this is probably going to be that some of the regulations have been reduced so that drugs can be brought to market more in a more timely fashion. So hopefully we're going to have medicines for this virus and others pretty quickly. So of the human viruses I want to talk about, let's start with herpes. Now herpes is kind of interesting because when herpes, I was practicing when herpes was really first became a serious problem. And the problem with herpes, more uh, among many others, I guess, is that once you have it, it's there for life. Now, you may not have a problem with it all the time or even ever again, but it's in your body forever once it's in your body. This virus was discovered before 1900. Uh, and there are two types. There's uh, herpes type 1, herpes type 2, Historically, herpes type 1 infects you above the waist, herpes type 2 below the waist. 
And the type 1 leads to basically cold sores and that kind of thing that are very, very common. Type 2 leads to genital herpes, which is also very common and is obviously a big problem in a sexually transmitted infection. I refer you back to our episode on sexually transmitted infections two months ago. So the problem with herpes, other than the fact that it's there and you can give it to someone else, is it hurts. If you've ever had a fever blister, you know that it's very sore. If you've ever had one of those on your penis or on your vagina, I can promise you, you know what that feels like, and that is not something you want. And the bad thing is, like I said, once you have it in your body, it's always there. Now, you can take medication today. We have new, they're not new anymore, new antivirals that can do a great job for herpes. You can, if you have outbreaks very often, you can take that medicine every single day. And the odds are pretty good that you'll have next to no outbreaks. But it's one of those things that if you do have it, you have to let your sexual partner know about it. Uh, the obvious encouragement there is to do it early in the relationship for obvious reasons, and I'm sure that's an entire other episode. But it's one of those things that people need to know about. According to the World Health Organization in 2012, there were 140 million people had type 1 infection and 417 million people had type 2 infection. So that's a lot of people. Now, luckily, herpes doesn't kill you. Herpes doesn't send you to the hospital, uh, but it absolutely is a miserable thing that you're much better off without. And it's a lot easier to diagnose that when you have active sores. So if you think you might have a problem, more specifically in this case with genital herpes, if you have lesions that are sore, you should go to the doctor and let them check that out and see if that's what you have because they can treat you very well and very effectively. And I encourage you to do that. Medicines do help in that case. They speed up the healing, they lessen the pain, they can make the whole thing more tolerable for you. Varicella zoster virus is the virus that causes chicken pops and therefore is the virus that causes shingles. So when I started practicing back in 1985, we still saw people with chicken pox. And that was still at a time when if someone's child had chicken pox, they would invite the entire neighborhood over that hadn't had chicken pox to play with them so that they would go ahead and get chicken pox, especially if it was a time when they weren't in school, so that they would no longer have to worry about getting chicken pox and spending the 21 days or whatever it is I've even forgotten now, it's been as long since I saw a case, that you're contagious. And the problem is that you're contagious with chickenpox the day before the rash comes. So it's very easy to pass that on to other people. Uh, it's transmitted mainly in a respiratory route, uh, but also direct contact and through the lesions as well. Many clinical complications of varicella zoster occur in people that don't have a good immune system. But in people that do have a good immune system, it's generally not a major problem. Shingles, which is a very, very painful rash of basically blisters, is the end result of getting the chicken pox. If, when you're infected with chicken pox, the disease goes through its process, and when it's gone, the virus stays in your body and goes to your spinal cord and lives. It's there in your spinal cord, and at some point, you might get overstressed or run down or 
uh, malnourished or sick in some other way and your immune system is busy over here fighting off this infection and it doesn't fight off that varicella zoster virus and it can become active again and it'll follow the nerve it's been living in to the surface of the skin and that's where you'll get the rash. So shingles, I mean, shingles can be devastating. I mean, if you ever get what you think is shingles, go to the doctor immediately. I don't care if it's Saturday night at eight o'clock, go to a doctor immediately. You need to be get on medication quickly to limit the long-term problems from shingles, which is chronic pain, and to get rid of that as quickly as you can. So that's basically shingles and chicken pox. And we're going to see less and less shingles over the years, probably not during my career or even lifetime, but with the chickenpox vaccine that's available today, which is the reason I never see chickenpox, fewer and fewer people will be getting shingles as time passes. And I can promise you that's a very good thing because if there's anything out there that won't kill you that you don't want, shingles has got to be near the top of that list. Another virus that was discovered in this one in 1983 is human immunodeficiency virus or HIV. Now, HIV is the agent that causes AIDS, although thankfully we see very little AIDS anymore. Most people who have HIV these days are living comfortably in a healthy life with HIV because there's fantastic medication that's been developed since HIV came along. Again, I was practicing when HIV started up. I remember it very clearly in the first patients that had HIV that presented with it, presented with AIDS. They presented with full-blown AIDS for which there was no cure, and I don't know how many people died from AIDS back in the 80s, but it's a horrible number, and still 36 million people are infected with HIV, and still 1.2 million people die every year from HIV, even with great medication. But when AIDS came around, you would see people, and you knew that they had some sexually transmitted disease. And previously when they had herpes, you'd go in the room with your head hanging and man, I got horrible news, this is herpes. And it, people took it as a death sentence, which it clearly was not. And then when AIDS came around, you walk in the room, when someone had herpes, you walk in the room with a little swagger and say, hey, this is herpes. And now they're happy that they had herpes because they didn't have HIV. Because I can promise you there's always something worse coming down the line. Now, it's not going to be coronavirus, but there's always something worse coming down the line. So HIV started up in the 80s, and there are it's a virus that changes and mutates quite a bit. There are millions of different DNA sequences to HIV that's around the world right now. It's a very fast-moving, fast-evolving thing. And... It actually was traced back to West Central Africa in the late 19th century or early 20th century where butchering and consumption of primates were widely practiced. And that's hard for us to imagine in America today, but that's the way this whole thing started and the way it started getting into people. Um, because of, uh, of that, it can be transmitted from chimpanzees or gorillas to people but it's mainly transmitted through contaminated blood and body fluids. So patients can, can be infected with HIV by sexual contact, needle sharing, blood transfusions, and even maternal transmission to the fetus. So I encourage you to practice safe sex. Don't share needles. 
Now, the blood transfusion thing has really gone by the wayside for the greatest part just because of testing of the blood supply. That entire chain of supply and, and testing has changed completely since this started, and the blood supply is very, very, very safe now. During a chronic infection, the incubation period might be as long as 8 to 11 years. So that if you get HIV, the idea of knowing where you got it can be incredibly difficult. And because it does affect your immune system, there are other disorders that can come along with it. You can have a variety of cancers and other immune-related problems that are devastating. And so HIV is well worth avoiding. There's not a vaccine for that. Avoidance is the treatment for, of choice for HIV. I'm really starting to feel like I've been practicing for a thousand years, John, because ever since like every one of these viruses I was practicing when they came along. And the next one's hepatitis C. Uh, when I started practicing, we would see patients that had abnormal liver functions and we would test them for the viruses we knew about. We'd test them for hepatitis A, it's negative. Test them for hep B, it's negative. And so you're thrilled. The patient doesn't have hepatitis A or B and you'd say to the patient, well, this is wonderful. This is non-A, non-B hepatitis. And that's what everybody called it. And that's what we knew it to be until we knew about hepatitis C. And I, I have no idea what percentage, what number of people I said that to when, in fact, what they had was hepatitis C. Now, hepatitis C was discovered in 1989. It still is much of a mystery. It's a blood-borne virus, so you can get it through the similar things, sexual contact, needle sharing, um, still some people through blood transfusions. And during an acute infection, the incubation period of hep, hep C is seven weeks or so. It can be four to maybe as long as 20 weeks. But there are many complications associated with hepatitis C as opposed to hepatitis A or B. You can have cirrhosis. You can have liver failure. You can have liver cancer develop because of that virus. And until very recently, there weren't very many, there wasn't any really good treatment. Now a good treatment exists. It's very expensive, but it's well covered by insurance companies because it is cheaper than a liver transplant, which is where many, many hepatitis C patients end up, is with a liver, liver transplant. So avoid these instances where you might get hepatitis C. That's an important thing. Mainly, you need to be concerned about sexual contact. That's the number one thing. After that, don't share needles. But I'm hoping none of y'all are even using needles. So don't share needles and use condoms, use protection when you do have sex with an, an unknown partner or one you don't know well. The next one's the influenza virus. I'm glad to say that I was not practicing when influenza came around. That was in 1510, first time they ever recognized it. The thing that's been getting a lot of uh, talk and press recently is the Spanish flu epidemic in 1919 killed millions and millions and millions of people. I think a third of the planet died from, hep from Spanish flu, uh, which is a form of influenza. It's named because it was called influenza, but because they thought originally it was an infection with a bacteria called Haemophilus influenza. So that's where it got its name. When they realized it was a virus, they just dropped the Haemophilus and they kept calling it influenza. And it was isolated for the first time in 1933. Now think about that. This huge epidemic was in 1918 and 1919 primarily. And they didn't identify the virus until 1933. Millions of people died. 
and we've identified three main subtypes of influenza, A, B, and C. A is the most common one. You'll hear people talk about influenza A quite a bit. Influenza B is almost as bad. It's not quite as contagious. It doesn't make you quite as sick, but it's a huge problem. And influenza C has been identified fairly recently, and it really doesn't cause epidemics or pandemics. They usually cause very mild illnesses, and it doesn't transmit from person to person as much as the others do. Influenza A, though, can be transmitted from animal reservoirs, birds, pigs, even seals, to humans, and they spread through direct contact with contaminated aerosols or droplets, just like coronavirus that we're seeing today. And during a flu infection, the typical incubation period, the time from exposure to actual infection is one to four days, average of two probably. And it can also have many complications. There can be pneumonia, there can be bacterial pneumonia, you can obviously get dehydrated, and you can also get encephalitis even from the flu. There are about 250 to 500,000 deaths every year from influenza, and that's out of three to five million cases, which is what they had back in 2014, the last time they had actual data. There is a treatment. Most people have heard of Tamiflu, and Tamiflu is better than nothing, it's not like throwing penicillin at strep throat, but it is better than nothing. Um, but avoidance and vaccine are the way to keep from getting the flu. If you are a human being who is alive and over six months old, you should get a flu shot every October, period. And I refer you back to the episode on influenza because everybody should have a flu shot. Now, we used to say if you're allergic to eggs, you shouldn't have a flu shot. Turns out it's not the truth. If you are alive and over six months old, you should have a flu shot every October. I'm going to take a break for a second. I know this is a lot of information. I put you hanging with me. We're going to go a little bit over our usual 30-minute time, but not by a lot. But I want to tell everybody that Mara Family Medicine started last week, as soon as we were allowed to do it, to do telemedicine with anyone who's willing. Uh, we have a wonderful solution, which is web-based. If you want to do a telemed visit with us, you let us know that. We'll send you a link to your smartphone. You do need a smartphone or a computer with a camera to do this. But we'll send you a link. You touch the link. It takes you straight to a website. You enable the microphone and the camera, and you're in. You're sitting in my virtual waiting room, and we can do many of these a day. And we're doing probably right now close to half of our visits that way. And, and into the first week of April, it will be probably closer to 80% of our visits that way. Uh, people are concerned, they're doing what they're told, they're staying in their house and hunkering down and that's good, but they still need healthcare. And I've wanted for a long time for this to be available and I've balked at it for a couple of reasons, but most of those reasons are now out of the way. And I'm very excited about the fact that Mar Family Medicine is doing this and I think you'll find that that's just another way that we're bringing care back to healthcare at Mara Family Medicine. When it comes to patient people who may have the coronavirus, if they are sick enough to need to be seen, we are seeing them in a drive-by fashion. When I arrived here at the office at lunch today, um, my PA was out here in the parking lot looking over a patient, doing a test, listening to their lungs and things, but we're not bringing that virus in the office if we can avoid it. We split the office up into a well set of rooms and a sick set of rooms and never the two shall meet. Uh, the waiting room, as you've ever seen it, if you've been in our coming office especially, 
is split up so that the waiting room as it existed was is now sick people and the well people are waiting elsewhere. In the Milton office, we've done the same thing. We have sick and well. So we're doing everything possible so that if you need to or want to come into the office, we feel very comfortable that you're not going to get the coronavirus by coming to see us. So getting back to the last few viruses I want to talk to you about, most of these others are not terribly common. Uh, the next one is respiratory syncytial virus, or RSV. And if you have a child or a baby or have had in recent years, you've probably heard of RSV because it's something that causes an awful lot of infections, especially in neonates and young children. And it can be very, very serious. Um, but luckily, most of the diseases and the infections are self-limited. The treatment for that is basically symptomatic support, pulmonary support, that kind of thing. Many people end up in the hospital, children especially, when they get this. But it's been around since 1957. And I think more and more we're, we're identifying that. I can't say that we're seeing it more and more, but we're aware of the fact that it is RSV more and more because we have good testing now that we didn't have for a very long time. RSV causes probably 34 million cases a year in children under five years. Most of it's going to be very mild, and you'll never know they had RSV. But some of them, like I mentioned, can be very serious. I mentioned hepatitis A and the other one, I mean C, and the other one that we see occasionally is hepatitis B. There are vaccines now for hepatitis A and B, and because of that, we just don't see them that much. This is also a blood-borne virus. It's it's something that you get through sexual contact, needle sharing. Uh, not so much blood transfusions anymore. Uh, the incubation period for it is very long. It's 60 to 150 days. Most people, it's in the neighborhood of three months before you actually have symptoms. Uh, and the symptoms are going to be fairly mild at first. You might have uh, nausea, vomiting, joint pain. You can get a rash. Um, but when you do blood work, it's very obvious that these people have hepatitis and it doesn't take long to make that diagnosis. Most people fight this infection off and create lifelong immunity to it. Uh, on occasion, you ha can have liver complications, but it's not like hepatitis C. And then there's human papillomavirus. Human papillomavirus is a very important virus. It's important because it causes cervical cancer in women, and it causes head and neck cancer, usually in men. And it's a virus that we now have a great vaccine for. You may be familiar with the Gardasil vaccine. It's a vaccine that is typically, give, typically given in three doses. But I just read today that they are finding that people that get one dose get immunity that almost equals that of people that got three doses. So if you never do anything else, with your children especially, get them at least the first HPV vaccine. Get the series of three if you can, because more is better. But if nothing else, get them at least that one HPV vaccine. Now, the assumption, in America at least, has always been that if you're sexually active, you have been exposed to HPV. Doesn't mean you have an infection, but you've been exposed to it. And that's how prevalent it is. It's essentially everywhere. The vaccine is going to help with that tremendously. And like I said, the biggest problem from it is it can cause cervical cancer, and it can also cause head and neck cancer. But they also cause genital warts. And that's a very common thing that, kind of like the other sexually transmitted diseases, once you have it, it's there to stay. 
and uh, you're, you need to let any sexual partner know that you have genital warts. And again, do that early in the relationship. That's an important thing as well. The worldwide prevalence of HPV in, in women who have normal cervix is 11 to 12% of them. That's an actual infection, not just the presence of the virus in their body, but an actual infection. And it causes somewhere between 260 and 500,000 uh, deaths every year. So that's a lot. And that can be avoided by getting this very, very simple vaccine. It's a vaccine you give to adolescents typically. The idea is to give it to them before they become sexually active for the obvious reason that I mentioned. Um, but we still give it to people in their 20s and 30s because getting it at some point is better than not getting it. And the last virus I'm going to talk about is human cytomegalovirus, or what's called CMV. CMV is not a huge problem like some of these other viruses are. Um, worldwide, the um, prevalence of CMV in the population is somewhere between 30 and 95 percent. But luckily, it doesn't cause a lot of major problems. Uh, it's, again, another bloodborne virus. You can give it to an infant through breastfeeding, so it's important to know about CMV. But it just isn't the big, huge problem that a lot of these others are. If your immune system is weak and you end up with CMV, then it might be recommended that you treat CMV. Otherwise, it's, it's not recommended that anything really be done for it, and then the most part. So that is a crash course on human viral infections. It is something that I think everybody's thinking about today because of what's going on in the world with coronavirus. I hope it's good information for you and helpful information. If it raises any uh, questions or if it raises any comments in your mind, I would love for you to get in touch with us at the uh, email address or Twitter feed that I mentioned earlier. And John, I think that's what I got on human viruses. Uh, good information, uh, Dr. Morrow. One question about the flu shot. You recommended folks get the flu shot, the, the con conventional flu shot or influenza shot um, uh, as uh, if they haven't already got it. That's not necessarily going to help with the coronavirus, but I, I take it you're giving that advice because it helps with symptoms, or why? Why, why is no, that? Actually, I'm giving that advice because people who have these symptoms of coronavirus might very well have the flu, and if people will go ahead that haven't gotten a flu shot and get one, then they're not going to get the symptoms. If they're not going to get the flu and show these same symptoms, so it'll be less people total with these symptoms. Ah, okay. And that way, if you've had a flu vaccine and you get these symptoms, it helps lead us more likely to the thought that you probably have coronavirus before the test comes back versus if you hadn't had a flu shot, we have to throw our hands in the air. Well, we don't know if you have the flu or coronavirus. You have to treat for everything and so forth. So it just makes it less likely that you're going to have those complicating symptoms and, and makes it easier for people to figure out what you actually do have. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um. Another question about, uh, I guess, the, the decision patients make on coming in versus uh, accessing uh, your help through telemedicine. Uh, how, how do I know which I need to do? do it? 
by by calling the office. If if patients just use their usual workflow when they don't feel good and call the office, uh, we're going to tell them if it sounds like a good opportunity for a telemedicine visit. We'll see. So if patients that call and have, um, well, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, but they have something that just is not a good fit for a telemedicine visit. And I got to be honest, there's not going to be many of those. Then we'll tell them you just need to come on into the office. Mm, okay. Yeah, see, you can tell I'm used to coming in at the early office hour, just coming in when I don't feel well, right? So that's what I'm used right. to as opposed that's to exactly colleagues. Right. So, so, uh, uh, and, and, and people can still do that, but we do have a sign on the door that if you have a fever over 100.4, cough and shortness of breath, we want you to go back to your car and call the office so we can determine whether you should be seen in the office or in a drive-by setting. Hmm. Gotcha. Um, so what, um, uh, you're saying that you think cases are going to increase pretty dramatically, even in Forsyth County. Well, I, you, you have to think so. I mean, if you believe anything at all that's coming out of the, the government and the health related agencies that are following this, I mean, I've seen estimates that up to 80% of people would end up with this infection. Um, now, the blessing is that an awful lot of them are going to have incredibly mild to no symptoms, but an awful lot of them are not going to have that. So I, I think it's it only makes sense that it's going to be here eventually. Gotcha. Well, this is um, awesome information. Thank you. Well, it's very strange times, and it's very concerning times. Uh, and it, I think it's a crying shame that it, at a time like this, when people need to be with other people and need the consolation of other human beings, that it's that much more difficult to get that right now. Uh, so I encourage people to be communicating in the ways that they can with their family and their loved ones and their friends. But be smart. Don't gather in crowds. Stay away from people at a distance when you're anywhere where other people are. And if you have symptoms, report them so that if you do have anything going on, you can get treatment early. Yeah. And one thing, uh, if I can give a shout out back to another episode, um, Jim was episode 15, because you talked about stress in that episode. And I know that's something a lot of people are going through and you gave a lot of great information in that episode. So I'd refer people back to that as well. I think that's great, and there's no question people are stressed because of concerns about a variety of things, whether it's the illness or their business or finances or their loved ones. It's, it's a, it is a very stressful time, and I firmly believe we're going to get past this and we'll be better than ever and have more knowledge than ever, um, but it's a st- stressful time right now in 2020, that's for sure. It is indeed, and we're, uh, we're blessed to have you help us through it. So thank you. I appreciate that very much. So for now, that is to your health.